Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. You know, as that first song started this morning, just, just reminded of how we are, we're jolted out of uh, just moving around, doing what we're doing, going through life, processing uh, things that are going on in our lives, and then we, we open up with that call to worship, really, is the beginning, that first song is... The music begins to play, and as the voices of God's people begin to go up to Him, we're really just jolted out of uh, all the distractions, all of the things that uh, we cling to in this life, all of the things that we are focused on, and our minds, our hearts are brought to the Lord. And just to to think that God is here with us this morning. He's with His people. Uh, This is not just um, a gathering for uh, of, of, a, of a group of people to spend time together. This is not just a gathering to hear some sort of teaching, uh, but this is a time in which we commune with our God, the living God, the God who made the stars, the God who made the dinosaurs, and the God who, through Jesus Christ, has become our Heavenly Father. And so what a blessing to be here gathered. I pray that that is your heart as you're here, that you're not just sort of uh, waiting for this all to end. Uh, maybe you are, maybe you've come with, with someone, maybe you're an unbeliever this morning and you've come with someone, a friend or a family member. Uh, my prayer for you is that you would, at this very moment, that you would ask God to show himself to you through his word. Regardless of where you're at right now, that you would call out to God and ask him to show himself to you. He does, he reveals himself through the scriptures. And our passage for this morning from the scriptures is Exodus chapter 7 verses uh, 14 to 25. So you can go ahead and go there in your Bibles, Exodus 7, 14 to 25. Today we begin looking at a well-known portion of Scripture known as the Ten Plagues. And even if you're, maybe you fit into the category I said earlier and you're, you're not a believer, maybe you haven't even been in church at all, Uh, This is probably something that you're at least vaguely familiar with, the ten plagues in Egypt. Or, as they have been called in the Jewish tradition, the ten strikes, which is actually probably a little more accurate, the ten plagues or the ten strikes of God against Pharaoh, against Egypt, to save his people. As promised, God begins to strike Egypt with his acts of judgment. These are acts of judgment. They are signs and wonders, awesome displays of his power. I was reading this past week in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, and he was explaining that the way we come to know God is not through this this sort of speculative uh, act of just sitting around kind of trying to understand God's essence, something that's incomprehensible to us. We have truths about it from Scripture. We know that God is three in one and so forth. Uh, But the way to know God is not to sit around and speculate regarding God's essence, but to come to know Him through His works. And we see those in the clearest way in the story of the Exodus, and specifically In these ten plagues, these signs and wonders, these awesome displays of God's power in Egypt. In these plagues, God is rescuing, judging, and revealing. Uh, That's what we are to understand from these. God is rescuing his people. That's what all of this is about. God is not merely 
pouring out judgment on sinners, though he is. But he is rescuing his people, as we talked about last week. God rescues through judgment. That is how God does it. That is what God did at the cross. He rescued us at the cross as he poured out his judgment on sinners in the person of his son, who was sinless. That Christ took our place as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. At the cross, God is pouring out judgment on our sins, and in that, he is rescuing us from sin, death, and hell. And so we see both of those at work here in the ten plagues, in the Exodus, the rescuing and the judging, but we also see the revealing. As I've said before, the clearest uh, revelation of who God is, of what God is like, what God's will is, and his character is at the cross. And I think we could probably say that the second clearest expression of of God's character, the second clearest display of who God is, is in the Exodus. God is revealing himself to his people and to those who are not his people. And to those who for centuries and millennia afterwards, including those of us in this room who by God's providence have the privilege of coming to these texts, God is revealing himself. He is showing who he is, what he can do, and what he is about. So rescuing and judging and revealing. But in all of this, he is also prefiguring. As we read the ten plagues and the story of the Exodus as a whole, we realize that this is one prefiguring of the redemption that will be brought by Jesus Christ. The Exodus is one gigantic picture of what God does for sinners in Christ. And probably the best verse or set of verses for this is one I've already quoted before, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, where Paul says, He, speaking of God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption The forgiveness of sins. What does God do in the Exodus? He transfers the people who are enslaved out of slavery. He transfers them into becoming his covenant people at Sinai. And then he transfers them into the new land. The land of milk and honey. The promised land. The land of rest. Yes, a true land, but also a type of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the liberation from sin, death, and hell that is ours in Christ. So my hope for us all is that we will not, we will pay attention to every detail of the story of the Exodus, but that we will not merely see this with interest. We will not merely say, oh, this is interesting, the story of the Exodus, but rather that we will appropriate this story in Jesus Christ, that we will recognize how it points to Christ, how it is fulfilled in Christ, and how the working out of the Exodus for each of us who is a believer has come in our own individual lives. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been preparing for the plagues. First, with the genealogy in chapter 6, 
which clearly identifies and firmly establishes Moses and Aaron. And so I talked about how that, that genealogy in chapter 6, it, it kind of comes abruptly and it cuts off the narrative, but it is meant to pause the narrative before we move into the plagues. It's meant to, to give the reader pause to, to root Moses and Aaron, those who, whom God will use to pour out these plagues. It is meant to establish them before the plagues begin. Then second, last week we saw that the preparation for the plagues comes in the first half of chapter 7. And in the preparation for the plagues, we saw three things. So here I just want to quickly review what we looked at last week. First, the orienting summary. God summarizes what he is going to do. He tells Moses what he is about to do, and he puts Moses' fears to rest. What we saw last week was that Moses is entirely beat down. Everything has seemed like a failure. Since he's come to Egypt, he has encountered a refusing Pharaoh. He has encountered the people being totally discouraged and even cursing him because they think that he has brought this on them by confronting Pharaoh and provoking Pharaoh to come against them. Moses is discouraged he is at the lowest point. And what we saw last week is that in, or, in order to orient Moses to the task at hand, in order to get Moses' eyes off of his circumstances and off of his fears, he turns his face towards what must happen now. He reminds Moses of what his plan is, what he's going to do in Egypt, and he orients him forward. Second, we looked at the obedient servants. Moses and Aaron clearly step forward in obedience to God. God has chosen to do his work through human vessels. God has chosen to carry out his purposes in this world through human beings. And that gives incredible meaning to our work. It gives incredible meaning to every aspect of our vocation. Here we see before our passage for today, God establishing Moses and Aaron in obedience. No more questioning, no more doubting or hesitating. They move forward in obedience to God. Twice we are told that they did just as the Lord commanded. And then third, we saw the overpowering serpent. The staff to serpent sign. Pharaoh wants to see a sign. And so God says, when Pharaoh asks you for a sign, I want you to take the staff and throw it on the ground and it will become a serpent. Probably a huge, powerful serpent. And we read last week that Pharaoh looks over at his magicians, his sorcerers, and by a supernatural power from Satan or by some sort of trick, scholars debate this, they throw down their staffs and their staffs become serpents as well. As we read last week, the one serpent, the staff of Moses and Aaron, devours all of the other serpents, all of the other staffs. The beginning of the contest is here. And the winner is Yahweh, overwhelmingly. Yahweh is the conquering king. Yahweh is the victor. Yahweh will overpower all that Egypt and its religion have to bring. That's what we ended with last week. So we've arrived today at the ten plagues. 
And today we come to plague number one. So we're just going to look at the first plague today. The title for the sermon is The First Plague, Nile to Blood. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word. We're going to read chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. The first plague, Nile to Blood. This is the holy word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, or Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile." And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his illumination of his word, and that he would be with all of us, that we would be hearers first. We have to be hearers first, but that it wouldn't stop there, that we would also be doers, that we would be hearers with our ears and with our hearts, but then we would put God's word into practice based on what he does in our hearts today by the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to this moment. You have given us these precious words inspired by the Holy Spirit as Moses was carried along, as Peter says, by the Holy Spirit. And as Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God-breathed words, not just ancient stories, not just moral tales, but divine revelation, the very Word of God written. Lord, we thank you that we have these words before us, and we come to them now to know you, to know you by means of 
your revelation. God, would you reveal yourself to us this morning here now? We thank you for this time together. We ask that your spirit would work in each of us individually and that your spirit would work among us collectively. Lord, that you would form us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray that our perception of who you are would grow, that we would see more clearly the contours of your character, that we would cling to you more faithfully, that we would trust, as we sang earlier, Lord, that though we do not hold you fast often as we should, Lord, that you will indeed hold us fast. That just as you preserved Israel through their time of enslavement and probably much syncretism of religion, Lord, you will preserve us in this world that we live in, this, this Egypt in which we find ourselves, this Canaan. Lord, we pray that you would guide us as the people of God. We pray that we would be faithful to you by focusing on your word, that we would draw strength from one another. Lord, that we would truly function as a family. Lord, we ask that you would go with us now and that your word would be taught clearly and would be understood clearly and that your spirit would apply it to us in very specific ways. And Lord, that we would leave here doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Moses' description of the first plague gives us three things. This is what we're going to look at this morning. So if you take notes, these are our points for today. This description gives us three things. And what we're going to see is that these themes are repeated in the plagues. Not to say that these are going to be our points for every plague, though they could be. Because in every plague, we will see these three themes. So here they are, Pharaoh's sin, Yahweh's glory, and Egypt's condition. So Pharaoh's sin, verses 14 to 16, Yahweh's glory, verses 17 to 20, and then Egypt's condition, verses 21 to 25. So first we're going to look at Pharaoh's sin. And for that, go with me to verses 14 to 16. Let's put those clearly in view. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. As we've seen repeatedly, this passage passage begins with instructions. Instructions from Yahweh to Moses, his servant. The Lord speaks. The Lord directs. So we read here all of these imperatives. Go, stand, take, say. This is God's charge to Moses. And by the way, as we read the Bible, we're supposed to be putting together our theology. And so as we see this, we just need to take note of the fact that there's a relationship between God and his people. God says what we are to do, and we do it. That is fundamental to our theology. God directs his people. God gives charges to his people. It shows us that the Lord gives us his word 
and he calls his people to act in accordance with his word. By the way, this is Christianity 101. This is fundamental for any understanding of our faith. Any understanding of what the Bible teaches about who God is and who we are and what our relationship is to God in covenant through Jesus Christ. God's people, like Moses, are a commissioned people. We are always a commissioned people. We never cease to be a commissioned people. God has given us directives and he has said to us, go and do. It's not just in the Great Commission where we are told to go and do. This is the message all throughout the New Testament. Go and do in accordance with God's word. Go and do in accordance with God's promises, these very great and precious promises. Go and do in light of what God has done. And that's significant. We never just obey God and and do things unto God out of a vacuum. We always do for God out of what God has done for us and what he has promised to do for us in light of who we are to him. So like Moses, we need to recognize that we are a commissioned people. As God's people, he says go and we do. And here the Lord tells Moses to go out to Pharaoh in the morning and meet him at the Nile River. Now why is Pharaoh there at the Nile River? It seems as though this is to be expected. This is a part of Pharaoh's routine. This is what he does. In the morning he goes out to the water. He goes out to the Nile. Now, is Pharaoh bathing? Is this some sort of just trying to get clean kind of bath? Or is this some sort of ritual bath? We read in chapter 2, verse 5, with Pharaoh's daughter back then when Moses was a baby, that the princess went out to the water to bathe. Once again, is she bathing because she wants to be clean? Or is this some sort of ritual bath? Maybe. This is some sort of daily ritual worship of the Nile god, Hopi. Or maybe this is even in conjunction with the worship of Hopi. This is also a time when the Pharaoh goes out and worships the sun god, Ra. He wakes up in the morning. This is part of his role as Pharaoh. He goes out ritualistically to carry out his religious duties. We don't know why Pharaoh has gone out to the water, but this is where his next encounter with Moses is to take place. Now this language of going to Pharaoh in the morning, usually by the Nile, is found at the beginning of the first, fourth, and seventh plague. So you can go through and look at them. Uh, This is one of the things that scholars do and commentators do is they try to figure out what's the structure of the plagues. How do they relate to one another? Of course, anyone reading these plagues would want to do that, right? And so what we notice is that in the first plague, the fourth plague, and the seventh plague, we get this language of Moses going in the morning to meet Pharaoh. Usually in two of those, it is explicitly said by the water. And so what this tells us is there is a pattern here. And in fact, the first nine plagues can be divided into three sets of three. So the first, second, and third are a unit, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and then the seventh, eighth, and ninth. And we get this pattern. 
Inside of each set, we get in the morning. That's the first one in the set. And then at his palace, that's the second one, to go into Pharaoh. And then the third one is without warning. So we see this pattern, three sets of three. And then, of course, we find the 10th plague and all of the explanations surrounding the death of the firstborn and all that goes into that. The 10th plague sits on top of the three sets of three functioning as a capstone for all of the plagues. Three sets of three plus a capstone. So here we are in the first plague of the first set. And as we go along, we will notice That these plagues progress. There's a progression to the plagues. They become more intense and more destructive as you move along. From the first all the way to the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. Catastrophic. In the tenth plague. So God tells Moses to meet Pharaoh down by the river in order to confront him. Why? What is Moses confronting Pharaoh about? Well, the answer is his sin. Moses is confronting Pharaoh about his sin. God tells Moses in verse 14, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So Moses, with staff in hand, the same staff that God had transformed into a serpent, the same staff that had gobbled up the staffs of Pharaoh's magicians, with staff in hand, Moses is to deliver this accusation against Pharaoh. Verse 16. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. So that is the big idea. That's the big idea of these opening verses. Pharaoh has sinned. And we see multiple dimensions of Pharaoh's sin. So I just want to go through these for a moment. When we look at these first three verses, we see multiple dimensions of Pharaoh's sin. First, it is a refusal to do what is right that emanates from a stubborn heart. Pharaoh is obstinate. He's stubborn. He's hard-hearted. And in his heart, in his will, he refuses to do what he knows to be right. He refused to be righteous, to act rightly. So it's first a refusal from the heart. It's a stubbornness. Second, it is a rebellion against God's word. So far, you have not obeyed. Notice that language at the end of verse 16. So far, you have not obeyed. What is the verdict on Pharaoh? He is in rebellion against the living God. He's in rebellion of the God over all the earth. He's in rebellion of the God who created Adam and Eve, who saved humanity through Noah and his three sons, and who through Ham brought about the life of Pharaoh. He is in rebellion against his maker. Thirdly, it is a suppression of the truth. The staff, notice the staff in Moses' hand serves as a reminder of what God has already shown Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked for a sign. And God did not just give him a, a little sign. God gave him a huge sign and showed him clearly that even though the magicians 
were able to replicate the sign that Moses and Aaron did. God consumed those staffs by the staff of Aaron and Moses. So God has revealed clearly to Pharaoh the truth that he is king, that he is sovereign, that he is the victor, that he is greater than Pharaoh, greater than the gods of Egypt, that he is greater than Egypt, that he is the God over all the earth. And what has Pharaoh done with this truth? What has Pharaoh done with this revelation? He has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Fourthly, it is a disregard for the worship of God. All humanity exists for the worship of God. That's why you were made. That's why you have children. And that's what we are to raise them up to be. Worshippers of the one true God. That's the whole reason that human beings exist. And what we see here with Pharaoh is an utter disregard for the worship of God. He has refused to let the people go to worship Yahweh in the wilderness. Now let's take a step back from all this. What I've just described, just in these three verses, we see each of these four things about Pharaoh's sin. And here's what I want you to notice You may be tempted to think, man, that Pharaoh guy, he was pretty bad. And just put the spotlight on Pharaoh and see everything I just said as isolated to Pharaoh or as unique to Pharaoh. But what we find in these four items that I've just gone through is a description that is much like the end of Romans chapter 1. So if you've read the end of, we've gone through as a church, if you've read the end of Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, going all the way up through verse 32, we get an indictment of humanity. These are the sins of the nations. These are the sins of the human race. And what we find here with Pharaoh, if we analyze it, if we look at it and we pull it apart, is very similar to what we find at the end of Romans 1. Let me say this to you. If you are an unbeliever here this morning... You need to understand that I have just described you. I have not just described some distant figure, some particularly atrocious human being, some particularly atrocious instance of human sinfulness. I have just described all of us. And apart from Christ, if you're here this morning, apart from Christ, this defines you before the face of God. Of God, If you are an unbeliever, if you are a non-Christian, you need to understand that you have a refusal to do, do what is right because of a stubborn heart. You need to understand that it is rebellion against God's word that drives you. That you have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And that you have no regard for God's praises. No regard for God's worship. And here's the thing, Christians, this was each of us. This was every single one of us before Christ stepped into our lives and mercifully, miraculously saved us. And so we have much to praise God for this morning. We have much to sing to him. We have much to adore him for as we consider what he has saved us from. So Pharaoh's sin is put on clear display here. This is human responsibility. And you might be thinking, as I've said all of this, well, hold on a second. 
didn't we read last week and haven't we read before that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? And the answer to that question is yes. We just talked about that, that it is God who sovereignly hardened Pharaoh's heart. We're told that in chapter 4. We're told that in chapter 7. Yes, God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, just as he would later do with Israel in the time of Christ, which is what we talked about for so long in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And yet, hear this, understand this, yet... Pharaoh is responsible for his sin. As with Israel in Paul's day. Remember when we were in chapter 9, 10, God went into this, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, went into this explanation of how God had sovereignly chosen and how God had sovereignly hardened Israel's heart and extended salvation to the Gentiles. And you think, well, God is the one behind all of this. And and that is true. And yet, at the end of chapter 9, and as we move into chapter 10, Paul moves the spotlight from divine sovereignty and divine hardening down to the culpability, the guilt of Israel for rejecting Christ. Both are tall. Both are clear. Both are true. This is... Divine sovereignty and human responsibility held together. These truths glued together, impenetrable by the mind of man, are present there in the story of Joseph's brothers. Present here with Pharaoh in the time of Moses. Present with Israel's rejection of Christ in the first century. We are not told that we must figure this out. We are told that we must believe it. We are told that we must embrace it as divine revelation. We are told that both are true and neither can be neglected. Neither can be trampled on for the sake of the other. Pharaoh is responsible for his sin. Let me say it this way. One day, as Daniel chapter 12 says, God is going to raise this Pharaoh, and put him back in his body. And he's going to stand before Yahweh, not Moses, Yahweh himself. He's going to stand before Christ. And Pharaoh will be punished eternally for his hard heart. He will be punished eternally for his refusal to obey God. He will be punished eternally for his hatred of God's worship, for all that I've just mentioned. And God's judgment will be just. Both of these things are true. Once again, we are not called to be speculative philosophers and to understand all of God's essence and to understand all of God's decrees. What we are told is to listen and believe God's truth, as Augustine would say, Faith-seeking understanding. And to go and obey what God has revealed. Do not do injustice to God's word simply because you don't understand. Secondly, we see Yahweh's glory. So we see Pharaoh's sin, verses 14 to 16. And now we come to Yahweh's glory. Look at verses 17 to 20. 
Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. By the way, let me just say, I I interchange between Yahweh and Lord. Anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, as I've said before, that is the holy name of God in Hebrew. And so when you see lowercase, or capital L, the lowercase O-R-D, that's Adonai, that's, that's Lord. That is the word for master or Lord. But when you see these all caps, that's God's holy name, Yahweh. So here we come to the plague itself. Through Moses and Aaron, God will strike the Nile and turn it into blood. That's the message that is delivered to Pharaoh. God tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh, and then he instructs him in what to say to Aaron. The warning to Pharaoh comes in verses 17 to 18. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now, As you would expect, and maybe as you have even read, many have offered natural explanations for the plague. And it really is kind of funny, actually, to read some of these things as they try to sort of describe how all of this sort of happened through flooding or volcanic eruption or, you know, whatever. Go through and describe how all of these plagues were simply natural, sequential happenings in ancient Egypt. Some have uh, tried to explain it that way because they have an, an anti-supernaturalism. They're, they're simply naturalists or materialists. And some have, out of apologetic purposes, have tried to show, look, this could have really happened. And so and they've, they've, they've gone in that direction trying to show that it could have really happened. Many have said that uh, they originate, the plagues originate here with flooding that brought red dirt and reddish-colored microorganisms, or algae, that caused the fish to die and the Nile to stink. And then, of course, some will go from there and just see a chain reaction all the way. I don't know how you get locusts from hail, but they go through all the different things, chain reaction moving through each plague, explaining how they happen. And some of these are quite inventive and creative and, 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 and honestly fascinating to read. You can find various naturalistic explanations out there. But I think we are meant to understand most fundamentally that these are miracles. These are miracles. It's kind of like creation in a sense. I think there's a parallel here. People will will go and look at creation and they'll they'll, they'll have to describe it in naturalistic terms. And so they have to spread it out. Spread it out. Out, 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 out. To who knows how long. Because it has to have some kind of sort of naturalistic explanation. Yeah, God's behind it. He's there. But but it's a naturalistic explanation. 
But what we need to understand is creation is a miracle. God said, and it was. And the same is true of the plagues. These are miracles. These are supernatural displays of divine power. They are spontaneous. They are immediate. They are discriminate. How in the world does nature discriminate between the Israelites and the Egyptians? But later we will see that God shields the Egyptians. So Pharaoh will actually go and check to make sure that none of the cattle of the Israelites is dead. And in fact, none of them are dead. God will shield his people, as not at the beginning, but as we move along, we will see God shielding his people. Those in Goshen will be protected. So it's spontaneous, it's immediate, it's discriminate, and it is targeted. If you've got some sort of epidemic or fever going through, how in the world does it strike the firstborn only? How does that happen? It is targeted. These are miracles, not to be explained naturalistically. Though, as we see, God is using nature. These are natural things. Frogs and locusts and flies and so forth are in nature. God doesn't create some sort of extraterrestrial monster. He uses what is in his created order to afflict Egypt in judgment. I also think, in contrast to a number of commentators, that the water is actually turned into blood. Even among those who reject these sorts of naturalistic explanations are still inclined to explain blood here being used metaphorically for red and would find some sort of natural explanation, though unlike what I described before, would not see this as some sort of naturalistic progression. I would disagree with that. I think that here we have water being turned into blood. Yes, it is true that Joel chapter 2, verse 31, can speak metaphorically of the moon being turned to blood. And that's where they will often point. Joel 2, 31, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And the meaning here, I think clearly is, uh, as I think everyone would agree, that the moon will be turned to red, used in this metaphorical, apocalyptic way. So many have pointed to Joel chapter 2 and said, see here, blood being used for the color red. And that's what's happening in the Nile. But there is no indication in our passage here that anything other than blood itself is in view. No indication. And I think we are meant to understand this transformation in light of the staff to serpent that has just occurred. We're we're moving along. Think about the context. We're moving along in the text, and we've just had an account where God has transformed, he has changed a staff into a serpent. And as we come to this, I think we are to understand the Nile to blood in the same way. Just as God temporarily changed the staff into a serpent, so too did he temporarily change the water of the Nile into blood. And this change to blood is ultimately meant to point forward to the death that will follow in later plagues. This is, as many commentators have said, this is an ominous sign. This is a plague. It does impact, as we're going to see in a moment with Egypt's condition. It does impact Egypt. It is an affliction upon Egypt. It is an act of judgment. But more than anything, it is an ominous sign of what's to come. And most importantly, it points all the way... 
as you would expect, the first plague points all the way to the tenth plague with the death of the firstborn. There is blood coming down the line, God says. Look at your water. Aaron is told to stretch out his hands over all the bodies of water that are connected with or that originate with the Nile, rivers, canals, ponds, pools, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone, or within wood and stone houses, or among trees and stones, that is, in the wilderness. Scholars debate over how this is to be translated. It literally says, trees and stones. So it's unclear, but these are the three different possibilities that have been put out there about this latter reference. But all of this water is transformed into blood. This is a comprehensive transformation of all surface water into blood. Everywhere you look, water, running water, standing water, surface water transformed into blood. And we are told in verse 20 that it happened as God said it would. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. So before we move on from this, I want to ask this question. Why have I entitled this point Yahweh's glory? Well, there are two main reasons why I have entitled it Yahweh's glory. First, The set of verses begin and end with an emphasis on Yahweh being known. Notice that. Look at verse 17. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. So what is God doing? Yes, he's he's turning the water into blood. Yes, he's pouring out judgment on Egypt. Yes, he's bringing the first plague. Yes, yes, yes. But, But above that, what is God doing? He is showing his glory to Egypt. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. And then in verse 20, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, this is done. Notice that, verse 20. So at the very beginning, verse 17, that that you may know. And then at the end, in verse 20, this was done. The text specifically says, in the eyes of or before the eyes of Pharaoh and before the eyes of his servants. It is specifically that God might be known. All that God will do in the plagues is to glorify his name. Chapter 7, verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So that's the first thing that we see here about God's glory. He does it all so that he will be known. And second... God is getting glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptian god of the Nile, Hapi. Probably not one of the gods of Egypt that you have heard of, like Osiris or Anubis or Ra. These are well known. You go to any museum and you see these sorts of things and these inscriptions or you watch a documentary and you you read of these ancient gods of Egypt. Hapi is probably not one that you have heard of as much, but in some ways he's more significant than them all in the lived out daily life of the Egyptians because the Nile was central to the livelihood of the Egyptians. All people lived within five miles of the Nile. 
within five miles, or they would not be able to survive. Most lived much closer than five miles. This is a congested habitation of people running along the river because of the significance of the river for survival. And Pharaoh was responsible for maintaining cosmic harmony on earth. He was responsible for making sure through his status as a god and through his oversight of Egypt as the representative of the gods, Pharaoh is responsible for making sure that everything proceeds well. And so by God striking the water of the Nile and turning it into blood, he is declaring that Pharaoh has lost control. Pharaoh doesn't have the control and the sovereignty and the oversight that he thinks or that the Egyptians think. He has Hopi as the god of the Nile was to provide for the people. But here we see that this false god is crippled by the god of the Hebrews. He can't even do a basic thing like make the water drinkable. God has crippled him and in fact crushed him in this plague. So God acts for his glory and God acts to show the emptiness of idols. And let me say something about that with the emptiness of idols. As we go through the Bible, as we read God's word, we need to understand that God is always doing that. God is always showing us his glory and the emptiness of idols. Ask yourself that question as you read the scriptures. God, what are you showing me about who you are and how are you conquering and overshadowing all forms of idolatry in my heart? What idols are you crushing today? What idols are you destroying in my sinful heart? That's what we need to ask God when we read his word, when we encounter his mighty works. Thirdly, we come to Egypt's condition. So we've seen Pharaoh's sin, Yahweh's glory, and now let's look at Egypt's condition. This is the aftermath. Look at verses 21 to 25. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, For they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after after the Lord had struck the Nile. So what is the result or the aftermath of this first plague? To ask it another way, where does it leave Egypt? Where does this first plague leave Egypt? Well, let's go through a few of those. First, Egypt is left with contaminated water. Dead fish. Stinky water, inability to drink from all the surface water of Egypt. No matter where you went, no matter what body of water you went to, even in the, and I think there, this, is, uh, this is support for that third alternative, even out where there aren't people, even among the woods where there are trees and vegetation, even out in the rocky places, wherever you find surface water, It was blood, 
drinkable. Egypt is left with contaminated water. I did a quick search online just to see how long, I was, I was curious, how long can a human being live without water? And uh, looked around at a few things, and it, it seems like it's about three days. About three days. And all of us are sitting comfortably here this morning. We've had something to drink, and you know, maybe it's been a little while since we've had anything to drink, but eventually, you know, your body is going to tell you, you need some drink. You need some water. You need to take a sip. And we do that. We don't even think about it. It's just normal. It's what we do. But go three days, and you're done. You're done. So Egypt is left with contaminated, non-drinkable water. Egypt is thrown into a desperate search for water. In light of the fact that we need water to stay alive, not just to be comfortable, to stay alive, to keep breathing, Egypt is thrown into a desperate search for water. For survival, they are left having to dig for subterranean water, to quickly dig wells in order to find some drinkable water. The implication here is that that is possible, that there is subterranean water, that God does this on the surface water of the land. And they are able to find drinkable water through wells. But it is a, it is a, a flurry of activity trying to find water for animals and for humans. Egypt is left with the antagonistic efforts of its magicians to defeat Yahweh. Can change, can they change water to blood, or can they change water to something red? And here, once again, we don't know what the Egyptians, magicians do. We don't know if this is some sort of demonic power. I think we are to understand that in the moment of the Exodus, Pharaoh is like a, a, a picture of Satan. He's like a Satan figure. He's much like Herod in the New Testament. And all of these are anticipations of the Antichrist that we read about in Revelation and in 2 Thessalonians and elsewhere. These are Satan-like figures. They are Satanic figures. They are offspring of the serpent from Genesis chapter Three. So perhaps Satan is working his evil power through these people, and they are actually able to turn the water into blood. Or maybe it's just some trick with some food coloring. We don't know. But they are able to replicate what has been done. Now, it's very interesting here that they can't change it back. It's kind of silly if you think about it. If, 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 they, if they had any sense, or if they were going to show at all their power, they would say, uh-uh, turn it back. And they would turn all that blood right back to water. But in, in, a, in, a, in, in this very pitiful attempt to stand up to Yahweh, they take probably a tiny little body of water. God has transformed all the surface water in the land to blood. And here these magicians are scrounging around trying to find a bucket of water to turn red. This is pitiful. We're going to get just a little bit more of this silliness before they are unable to do anything. And they will say, this is the finger of God. And they must cease from their demonic or silly efforts to compete with the Lord God of Israel. Egypt is also left with an obstinate leader who will continue to bring his nation into ruin. 
Here we have the picture of, of how a leader can affect an entire nation. Pharaoh is obstinate. He, he refuses to listen to God. He refuses to listen to Moses. And he brings his nation to ruin. Later, Pharaoh's servants will look at him with utter despair and frustration. And they will say, what are you doing? Egypt is ruined. Stop this. And his heart will get harder and harder until finally, after the ninth plague, he will say, if I see your face again, you will die. He looks at Moses and he says, get out of my face. If I see you again, I will kill you. That's how hard this man's heart had become by God's sovereignty and by Pharaoh's human responsibility. His heart here remained hard. He would not listen, and he went back into his house. It's a shrug of the hand. It's a turning and arrogantly, proudly walking back into his palace. I have no time for this. In verse 25, we are told that seven days pass. This is probably the period where the water dissipates. So for seven days, we're not told, did this happen uh, and, and last only a day or two? Did it last for maybe two or three days and begin to turn back into water? Did it last that entire seven-day period and then it becomes water again? Was it still lingering on with the frogs that we come to next? We're not told that, but the impression that we're given is that by the time seven days are up, we've moved on. We've moved on beyond the Nile to blood. So here we see the consequences of sin. God judges sin. He pours out his acts of judgment on this nation. Yes, he is sovereign, but the sins are real, and so are the consequences. Let no person think, that God's sovereignty removes human responsibility for sin. Each of us is responsible for every sin we commit. And each of us would spend eternity in hell under God's judgment, bearing the wrath of God for those sins if Christ would not have taken them upon himself at the cross. Well, that's why we love Jesus so much. For those of you who are here who aren't believers, that's why we love Christ so much. is because he took that on himself at the cross. And Christ extends an offer to all men, to all women, to children, to all. Come to me, all you who are burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ says, no one who comes to me will by no means be turned away. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ now while you're sitting here under the preaching of his word, while you're sitting here with God's people. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, turn to him. Repent of your sins. What you have done, do no more. And trust Christ to forgive you of those sins. Commit your life to him and follow him as your Lord. Well, this is just the beginning. Next week, we'll look at the frogs. And so, as we leave here this morning, some things I want you to see clearly. See God's power and glory. See the seriousness of sin. See the emptiness of idols. 
See the lengths to which God goes to rescue His people. The lengths to which God has gone to rescue each of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for revealing Yourself to us this morning. God, we thank You for the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. We praise you that you are, that you have mightily displayed your power throughout human history. We thank you for these moments of intense miracles, these these points in the history of the world of signs and wonders associated with Moses and associated with Elijah and associated with the coming of Christ and the apostolic ministry. We thank you for revealing your redemptive purposes, for carrying out your redemptive purposes. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, we today are free from sin and that we have you as our God, that we are your people. As you say of Israel, your people, my people, Lord, we are your people, a people for your own possession, a people zealous for good works, a people who call you Father and a people who will reign with your Son eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done, for what you have revealed to us today. We pray that you would go with us this week, that our hearts would be ready to obey, that we would take sin seriously, and, Lord, that we would see your glory wherever it is found in creation, most specifically through your inspired word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.